we come before you now as we open to your word on your gospel of Mark. We ask and pray, Lord, as we have just worshipped, as we have just praised, as we have just glorified as Lord, we have uh, spoken these words. God, both in the sacrament of communion that we will participate in this morning, and within our own souls, our hearts, our minds, our entirety. We pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would just move. And that we would grow in our relationship with you here in this moment. That we would be bound together even greater as your body. Your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. If you... Uh, would, I would like to invite you to grab a Bible next to you, or if you brought your own Bible, that is wonderful. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, and that is on page 937. If you weren't with us last week, we're doing something new here at Anchor Bible uh, through this uh, Mark study. We're not going to project the Scripture on the screens. We uh, have new uh, Bibles there in the seats for you, and if you do not have a Bible at home and would like to take one as, a, uh, as your own, we want to invite you to do so. Uh, if you already have one, we want to try and help you uh, be reminded to bring yours. Uh, you're welcome to use these as we uh, spend our time opening the Lord's Word and digging in. It is uh, my prayer for each of us is that we would uh, not only create the habit, but that we would be comfortable in God's Word for us as we begin this new year. So, uh, say amen if you're on page 937. Amen. amen. Okay. So, what we're going to do is we are going to work our way through here in the Gospel of Mark in these verses. And uh, as we uh, went through chapter 1 and, and we had to kind of speed through chapter 2, we'll do a little bit of recap of chapter 2 here in a moment. But we, we are preparing our hearts as we uh, have the Christmas season. We've learned so much about Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we uh, learned about John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And, and we also learned that the Gospel of Mark begins, remember, with that proclamation of the one who is coming. That's from John the Baptist. And, and that has to do with the context. The Roman Christians, as, as they would have heard the announcement, they would have had that, uh, that would have gotten their attention much more than the origin story as the uh, Matthew and Luke behold those and, and also with John. So as, as Mark brings us forward here this morning into chapter 3, I think it's important for us to identify a few key players and characters that we're going to read about. And so there are the scribes, there's Pharisees, there's Sadducees, and there's Herodians that we're going to talk about. And now there's going to be some words in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm not going to get them right. And so this is something that I learned and I wanted to share with you. Don't hesitate if you don't know how to pronounce the name. Just say it with confidence, and, and it'll be okay, right? So if you chuckle at some of my uh, fumbling over words, that's okay. I'm, I chuckle at myself too. We do that at home all the time. Amy's like, that is not how you say that. And I was like, well, I tried, right? So... All right, so let's start here first just with identifying a few of these key people. So we have scribes. These scribes are, are experts in the Old Testament law. They were the ones who would draft legal documents for like marriage, divorce, loans, so on and so forth, okay? They're, they're experts in the Old Testament law. That's really a big thing that you need to remember. These Pharisees, the, the next group of folks, they followed the legal traditions of their forefathers, 
So they believed in the resurrection, and they often had a lot of overlap with the scribes due to their knowledge of the Old Testament law. But uh, we're going to see a lot of them this morning. And then we have the Sadducees. They're a part of this high priesthood, and they're known for having this socio-religious role. They're powerful. They held a high status. They had a lot of wealth, typically. They benefited from the Roman rule and from their stature with the Sanhedrin. That's the religious political body that appointed priests and kings. And, And then we have the Herodians. And this is... Uh, a group of individuals who opposed Jesus, and they were supporters of Herod the Great's dynasty. Okay, and so those are some of the key players. Now we've identified them a little bit. You're going to want to encourage you to underline them or just recall those as we get to them in the Lord's Word. It's beneficial for us, as we've uh, notified who they are or identified them, is to see what happened in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 all the way through here to where we're going to start today in chapter 3. There's controversies between Jesus and these religious leaders. There's five, actually. The first one is, if you remember, Jesus is in a home, and there's crowds of people that are listening to him, and and there's these four friends that are carrying their buddy on a mat, and they can't get into the house, so they go up on the roof, and they open up the roof, and they lower him down on the mat, and and Jesus sees their faith and, and tells him uh, to get up. Your, your faith has made you well and take your mat and go home. And the, the religious there are like, oh my gosh, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can heal but God alone? So there's this, this controversy that starts there. And then it moves straight into Jesus sitting down and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And, and the scribes are like, who is this Jesus guy, this Savior, this Messiah? He's eating with these filthy people, these sinners. And Jesus says, it's, is it not the healthy who don't need a doctor, but the sick? I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And then the, the scene changes and Jesus and his disciples are together and the, these religious folks come and say, hey, wait, uh, John's disciples, and and we are fasting, but your disciples aren't fasting. And Jesus says, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. And Jesus goes into a a new wine with new wineskin, and and this whole elaboration of, I'm here with them. They will eventually fast, but right now, while I'm with them, they don't need to. And then the fourth one, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field on a Sabbath day, and they take some grain, and and they're not allowed to do that according to the Old Testament law, and Jesus gives a response. Well, don't you remember what David did on the Sabbath day? He went in and and ate of that bread, and he says Sabbath is is made for man and not man for Sabbath. So there's these religious, there's the the Old Testament laws that are coming forward, and they're bringing, they're trying to accuse Jesus. They're, They're really getting upset. And we get to this fifth controversy right here in chapter 3. And so if you're with me, I want to begin reading in verse 1. And and this is what it says. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Okay, so let's stop here for a moment. 
We remember, as we learned last week, that Capernaum is really kind of a, a home base camp of where Jesus is doing a lot of ministry out of. And we talked about all the different fishing towns around Galilee there. And, and here Jesus comes back into that area and he's at a synagogue. And we remember the synagogue in like our modern terms would be like a campus church from the temple, right? So you've got the temple in Jerusalem and you've got the synagogues that are all throughout because of everybody having to travel all the way to the temple. So Jesus is in the synagogue, in a synagogue, and there's a man with a shriveled hand and it's a Sabbath day. Right? It seems very basic, right? There's uh, not much description given about the man other than he's in a, what we would call a church and he's got a shriveled hand. What, what, where else would we want this man to be, right? He's in a good place. But there are also motives at play here by these Pharisees as they're plotting to accuse Jesus. Now remember, this is the fifth thing. This is the fifth controversy. They're like, okay, finally, we're going to get this guy, and and we're going to create our case here. And it's interesting as they try to bring these charges against Jesus, they build this legal case. Jesus' ministry has just begun. And already, those in charge are trying to put an end to it. Now, there are a lot of things to be revealed here, but one of the focal points is to see the power of men, to see pride, even in the church, come up against Jesus. Now, we need to step back and ask, why are they so upset with Jesus trying to bring charges against him? I mean, what is Jesus doing so wrong? They believe that Jesus' healings were a form of work, and according to the Old Testament law, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But Jesus was intimidated by, their, by these opponents, and he was intentional, and he made this man stand up in front of everyone. And then he says this in verse 4. Read with me. He says, Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. Now, Jesus' question could have easily been answered, but they remained silent. The contrast here is that Jesus is trying to save life. He's trying to heal this man, while the religious figures are trying to take life. You see that? Jesus is wanting a healing for this man, and these religious leaders are wanting to build this charge, this plot to kill Jesus. Right here in verse 4, I think we miss an even deeper meaning just with our English alone. And and in the Greek, it is beautiful because when Jesus poses this question, is it lawful to save life or to kill it? The word life here in Greek is to breathe the soul. So Jesus is literally asking, is it right to give the breath of life to a soul? Isn't it right to give the breath of life to a soul? To heal this individual? And it heightens the reality and deepens the meaning of of why these individuals are trying to plot against Jesus and kill him. Going up against their, their beliefs of the Old Testament law, their pride, their power, all of those different things. And we might say, that's great as we read this here in the Gospel of Mark. How are things different today? 
How can we understand what is taking place here and, and really think about our own day and age? I would argue that there's a large portion of people today, people that you probably have in your families, just as I have in my own family, people that you have in the workplace, people that you have in the community, people that you are connected with, with in one shape or another that don't want any mention of Jesus, that don't even want to talk about Him, not wanting the life of God even mentioned. And I'm going to digress on that for a moment. We'll come back to that. So let's head right into verse 5 here. He, Jesus, looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to, them, to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And we move into verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea and Jerusalem and Idiom and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with disease were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And we're going to the reason Jesus is telling them not to say something about him is that it wasn't his time to be fully revealed because when that time comes, they ultimately crucify him. And we'll see that here as the gospel unfolds. But as Jesus is gathered here with his disciples and people are just try to imagine the scenery here, crowds and crowds of people are coming. And we read in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that, they might, that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonarges, which means sons of thunder. What a cool name, right? Sons of thunder? Yeah, that is t-shirt material right there. <laughs> Then you have Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, of, uh, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And right here, Jesus is moving from the synagogue of this man's healing to crowds of people, and he's in a boat preaching, and he's healing people to a mountainside where he gathers 12 individuals that will preach that they will learn from Jesus over the next three or so years as we believe that Jesus, his ministry began at that baptism of the Jordan River, John the baptism, Baptist, and, and then he was crucified, he died and was raised to life and he ascended into heaven within a three or so year time span. But for now, it's important to know that Jesus selects these 12 men to follow and learn from him, to be his disciples to be discipled, to walk with God. Jesus chose the twelve in the same way that He, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had divided Israel into twelve tribes. So that's the correlation. We have twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and there's twelve disciples. 
So who are these 12 people? I want to just read through a quick overview of what they did before being called to follow Jesus, some of their character traits. And we're going to see these throughout the Gospel of Mark, and you will see them in the other Gospels as well, and in the uh, epistles and in the letters. So Simon is given the name Peter. He was a fisherman. One of his character traits, he was impulsive, but later he was bold in his preaching about Jesus. You have James. He was a fisherman. He was ambitious, also short-tempered, judgmental, but he was deeply committed to Christ. John, he was a fisherman. He was ambitious, judgmental, but later very loving. Andrew was a fisherman. He was eager to bring others to Jesus. Philip, he was a fisherman, and he had a questioning attitude. He had Bartholomew. We don't know much about his occupation, but he had a character trait of honesty and straightforwardness. Matthew, or as some would know, Levi, the tax collector, despised as an outcast because, because of his dishonest career. Thomas, unknown about his occupation really, but he had a, a both courage and then he also had doubt. James, son of Alphaeus, unknown a, a lot about his occupation and not much said about his characteristics. The same goes for Thaddeus. And then we have Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus, unknown occupation, but he was treacherous and greedy. Ultimately, the quick overview there of the disciples, they weren't perfect. And you and I aren't perfect. Jesus isn't calling somebody that is all primed, primed and perfectly in shape to follow him and be a disciple. You and I today have a calling to pick up our cross, to bear a cross, to follow the Lord. No matter where we are, he can work with us. And so as we read those names, I want to take us from this moment of Jesus on the mountain, asking these disciples to follow him straight into what we would like really, it's a very dramatic scenery, okay? So in verse 20, we read this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. See, his family was understanding that Jesus had this calling. Jesus was going, but they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't really understand what is taking place here. And so not only do you have the religious leaders that have hesitation, they have a plot to kill him. Now we have Jesus' mother, brothers, sisters uh, coming and they're like, whoa, Jesus, what is taking place here? But then verse 22 And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He is driving, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now this is an important stance these religious leaders are taking. They're trying to build their case that what Jesus is doing through these miracles, through these healings, is not because he is the son of God, but that he is Satan. Now that's a steep accusation to make up front. 
for a variety of reasons, but ultimately it comes out of their challenged authority and power of positions. The attention is on Jesus' preaching, his miracles, the people following him, casting out demons. After all, the only ones that recognize him as he comes are the demons, right? The, those that are possessed are like, son of God, what do you want to do with us? And so they're building off of that. They're like, oh, we hear that? They, they recognize, so they're going to twist this and contort it a little bit. And we're going to just dip our toes here for a moment. You know, as we read in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and very vividly in Revelation, we learn a lot about Satan. We learn that God created everything and everyone, angels included. Satan was at one point an angel who disobeyed God by wanting to become God, and Satan can, is a counterfeit of everything of God. We read these vivid details in Revelation of the battle between good and evil, and as it unfolds, Satan convinced other angels to follow him, and they set a war against God. But Michael, the archangel, and God's army defeat Satan and his minions, and they're cast down from heaven to earth. From that moment until the final defeat, Satan, he has been trying to destroy God's creation. He is in the counterfeit business. Anything of God he is opposed to and the opposite of. As we read in Ephesians, we are not in a battle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the darkness, the evil forces of this world, and therefore we need to armor up. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, all right, Pastor, you've gone off your rocker. This is not what I was expecting when we came to church today. You know, when I first heard about good and evil and this spiritual battle I'll be honest I had my doubts today in our world we chalk up a lot of things to psychological disorders mental health bad luck bad or broken upbringings or circumstances to justify evil and injustice but how can we see or hear what is happening through the world in wars, in drugs, in abortion, in sex trafficking, and so much more, and just say it's just a mental disorder? It's just psychological. There is something deep down, and it's evil. Satan wants to deconstruct and destroy life. Think about this for a second. What does evil spell backwards? L-I-V-E. Live. It's the opposite of living. Life is what Satan is out to take. And just as you and I have encountered and experienced a lot of different things. I've seen God restore. I've seen God redeem. I've seen Him heal and bring new life. I've seen God forgive and save, not only in my own life, but throughout His church, throughout His community. God is so good. And yet, I've also come face to face with evil and injustice, bondage and chains, Deception and destruction within the church and within our communities. 
If I ever was a skeptic about this battle, this plot of good and evil, of God working in and through our lives to protect us, to equip us from the fiery darts of Satan, who is out to destroy. If I was ever a skeptic, last year made me a realist in all the ways that I encountered Satan trying to work and deceive and destroy. The reality is there are two types of realms. There's the spiritual and the physical. God is not only the creator, but he is the victor of both. God always wins. Satan may devise plans, but by God's power, might and justice, they will not win the day. We have to, as Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God every single day. And that's exactly what Jesus says here in response to these religious leaders who are plotting against him. Listen to what he says in in verse 23. Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? And remember, they're accusing Jesus and his works of being the works of Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house, with, with house without first tying him up. Then he, can, then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemies the whole, against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus is saying that all can be forgiven except for one thing. Taking what God has done and what God is doing and attributing that to the work of Satan. Verse 30, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus, his mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. End of chapter 3. As we navigate through these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and their opposition against Jesus and these plots and these accusations that Jesus is actually Satan, counterfeiting what God is doing, what Jesus coming to save, to heal, and to give life, to redeem. All throughout our lives, brothers and sisters, we should take heed and and, and really have our, our ears and our hearts tuned. And those moments when somebody says, you know, I don't want to talk about Jesus. We have to ask ourselves why. I, you know, you've got to separate your religion and your politics. You know, with the school shootings that are happening, it's mental health, it's gun control. But take note, in, in a lot of those kinds of conversations, brothers and sisters, there's not much said about the church or faith. An opportunity for you and I as brothers and sisters to see what takes place in this world 
and say, no, Satan, get behind us. And I think it's fascinating and beautiful and an invitation for you and I. As Jesus goes from being accused of doing Satan's work, of him saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm God and I'm doing God's work. An invitation and the ending for you and I to have the same title as mother, as brother, as sister by doing God's will. And so this morning as we bring it to a moment of, of the sacrament of communion, as we prepare our hearts to participate in what Christ has done, I, I want to encourage you and remind you that as Jesus says here, this is my mother and brother and sisters, those who are doing God's will, it is also a forefront of what Jesus does and what happens as Jesus is sharing that last meal with his disciples. And if you recall with me what he does, He says, take and eat, for this is my body, which is given for you. And take and drink, for this is my blood, a new covenant which is poured out for you and for many, the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so brothers and sisters, this morning we have the opportunity to participate in what God has done for us. An invitation to receive what he has done for us. I don't know what healing you need today. I don't know what mountain you're climbing. I don't know what hurdle you're trying to jump. I don't know what blessing you're rejoicing in. I don't know what season you're coming into of joy. But this one thing I do know, that we are all invited to come and to receive what he would have for us. And it's life. It's life. So, I would like to invite our communion stewards forward this morning to help us.